Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Derek Davis. Continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. Sometimes I like to think that we uh, that, that everyone in the counterculture or who have sort of passed through the counterculture identified with those ideas and practices uh, has their own particular beat grandfather. It, it, you know, if you recall, we could say there were four main beats, although there's many others that we could invoke, and perhaps they have also have uh, grandchildren of their own. Uh, but thinking of uh, William Burroughs, Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, and in my pantheon, Gary Snyder, as being the sort of uh, four main characters. And it's actually kind of a fun game to play, which of the countercultural character you're thinking of, whether it's yourself, your pals, or uh, other artists, musicians, uh, avant-gardists, and spiritual seekers uh, that may attract you, uh, which of these they have the most affinity for. Um, I I've gone through the list myself, and while I I'd have to say that I, I uh, share much of... Uh, you know, Allen Ginsberg's uh, erotic, visionary uh, uh, exuberance and uh, Kerouac's sort of uh, darker, more jazz-inflected, spontaneous um, grind. And, uh, and even Gary Snyder's wonderful West Coast wilderness zen that I myself am a grandchild of uh, Dr. Bill and his uh, obsession with magic, uh, social forces, control societies, and other creepy things. It's not necessarily the best one to have, or certainly not the most fun one to have. But luckily, I stay away from the hard drugs, so uh, uh, I escaped that, uh, uh, that uh, dastardly fate. Um, but today's guest is very much a grandchild of Snyder. Uh, today, we're going to be talking to Andrew Schelling, who, who is a poet and wilderness writer um, who teaches poetry and writing at Naropa Institute in Colorado, but has spent a good deal of time out here in, uh, in California um, after moving out from the East Coast. And uh, he knows uh, he's translated poems in Sanskrit and Arapaho, but he's talking to us today because of his wonderful new book, uh, Tracks Along the Left Coast, Jaime Duangelo and Pacific, Cult Pacific Coast Culture. Uh, and it's a little hard for me to be objective about this book because it's so in my own pocket of interests uh, as someone who spent more uh, time over the last uh, 10, 15 years reading about California than reading about anything else. Uh, he not only tells the tale of one of the more fascinating uh, proto beat characters. Jaime D'Angelo, you could see, is almost sort of a grandfather of Gary Snyder. So it takes the, the stream farther upstream, as it were. Uh, but there, it, the book is full of fascinating characters that I've known about in other contexts. Robert Duncan, Henry Miller, Arthur Krober, Ishii, all of these these figures that you begin to uh, you know begin to identify and, and, and interrelate are drawn together uh, through the story of this amazing Jaime D'Angelo, an uh, outsider, anthropologist, linguist of uh, Native American languages, bohemian, um, dar uh, sort of proto-shaman in his own right, poet, uh, and one of the early pioneers of, of, of uh, the, the bohemian scene in Big Sur. 
So it's a, it's a wonderfully written book. It's not a conventional biography where you start at the beginning and you end at the end. It, instead, we see different angles of D'Angelo's life, and there's sort of these marvelous kind of retur returns to different passages or quotations that are particularly insightful, and we return to them and see different uh, angles of the story, and there's uh, these wonderful, not even digressions, but movements into considera considera considerations of California Indians, of the particularities of their language, of West Coast poetics, uh, of uh, the sort of uh, bohemian um, uh, tradition of uh, wilderness living. Uh, and so it's just a remarkable book about California and, and really one of my favorite, the favorite books I've, I've read this year for sure. So with uh, no further ado, as they say, uh, Andrew, thanks for joining us on Expanding Mind. Thank you, Eric. Glad to be here. Well, I just gave a little bit of a thumbnail sketch there of the of the subject of tracks along the left coast. And though, of course, it takes a whole book to tell the tale, um, I thought I'd give you the opportunity to maybe flesh out a little bit more of where this guy was coming for, what he found in California and uh, what makes him uh, worthy of, of, of study, but also what has made him so invisible. I mean, to my mind, he seems like one of the more interesting characters of the era, and, and, and though I had known about him before, uh, there really is not uh, too much about the guy beyond a certain little uh, pocket of, of, of cultural history. So um, I'd just love to have you give us a, give us a portrait of, uh, of Jaime D'Angelo. Sure. Let me begin with um, your terrific sense of the beat poets and their grandfathers and their grandchildrens and your invitation to everybody listening that we might all be grandchildren of one or another of these people. Um, it's, it struck me that um, if you look particularly at those East Coast beats, you, met, you mentioned uh, Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, you could add to that Gregory Corso. Um, those guys, for a lot of their inspiration, and especially bohemian inspiration, had to look to Europe. You know, the uh, sort of grand visions that Ginsburg had of William Blake, and for uh, Kerouac, it would be people like Rambeau, Baudelaire, for Corso, very much his Italian ancestry, and uh, the sort of surrealist and avant-garde poets of the 20th century lingering around Paris and, you know, carousing across Europe. The West Coast writers of that time, sort of the uh, post-World War II era, they had their own grandparents already on the West Coast. And I think these are uh, writers who don't have quite such a large cachet. Um, you know, they're more like secret influences or specialized taste. I think Robinson Jeffers, you know, he reminds me of... Uh, what Melville called the wild game flavor. He's not going to be to everybody's taste, and especially not really to urban uh, raised people who don't have that sense of wilderness. Uh, the most invisible one, you're right, Jaime D'Angulo, um, uh, influential enormously on Snyder, but also crossed paths importantly with Allen Ginsberg, not literally, but it was Ginsberg who got D'Angulo's first book published. Uh, D'Angulo walks just for a moment like a thread of a ghost across one of Jack Kerouac's novels, Desolation Angels. And uh, so, 
you know, the West Coast writers then already had something like an indigenous tradition, both Native American and these sort of early settlers, wilderness homesteaders. Dangulo had homesteaded down at Big Sur when that uh, kind of wild, jagged coastline around Partington Ridge was a two-day's horse ride from the nearest stage stop. You know, the, the nearest town really was Carmel, which was full of Bohemians, but it was a rough two-day ride to get down to um, Partington Ridge, where he homesteaded uh, 1,600 feet above the ocean. So you had asked a really good question, why, you know, has he been so invisible? And I think this is partly because most of his work was very specialized linguistics and ethnography. And, you know, that kind of material was either published in special trade journals for professional linguists or uh, ethnographers and anthropologists or sat unpublished. And before any of his books came into print, he was already a legend on the West Coast. He was known as being a comrade of storytellers and shamans like William Rolgan Benson, Old Kate, the um, Modoc, uh, Jack Folsom, Old Blind Hall, both of them Pitt River, uh, Sukmet, his drinking companion, also a doctor among the Pitt River, and then friendships with Mabel Dodge and Tony Lujan, Carl Jung, uh, kind of a friendship, and then enmity with D.H. Lawrence, very close to Robinson Jeffers, and then this whole range of younger poets of the San Francisco Renaissance, like Robert Duncan, Mary Fabilli, um, uh, Jack Spicer, who he trained in linguistics. And so before any of his books came into print, he was already this kind of legendary, half-naked wild man who had divided his time between Berkeley and Big Sur and had crossed influential paths with other writers. So his reputation wasn't really dependent on books. Yeah, that, that makes sense. It's, it also seems that his his reputation was very much bound up in in place. You know, you're talking about the importance of 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 wilderness to the sort of tradition of California poetics, and and along with that is a sense that that sort of specific places are are part of the meaning of a of a of a figure or part of the way of the context within which they they operate. And and uh, uh, Dangelo, forgive my my. Uh, poor pronunciation earlier uh, was very much associated with this wild Big Sur area, and as people know, even from recent news, with the uh, you know the the the, uh, the bridge collapses and the closed off uh, coast that we had uh, just uh, over this last uh, year plus, um, uh, that it's a very rugged environment, and even in the early 20th century, when you know most much of the rest of California was, was sort of a, a relatively accessible. Uh, that it remained a, a very wild and challenging place. So it, it seems that part of what makes him an, an, an interesting, intriguing person is that he made a uh, he had a very strong sense of that particular land. And I was I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about how he first came to that wild, severe, beautiful Big Sur coast, and what kind of how he how he made this deeper connection with that with that land. Sure, he had he had um, 
grown up in an aristocratic Spanish family in Paris in the 16th arrondissement, and that was in those days one of the wealthier uh, neighborhoods. His family seems to have been sort of remote, very pious, and quite eccentric, and they put him in a Jesuit boarding school, which he loathed. And he really seems to have held on to his whole lifetime this sort of... um, mistrust, loathing, and deep sense of hypocrisy of the Catholicism he brought was brought up in. So when he turned 18 and could free himself, he came to America and decided he'd become a cowboy. And he came out to uh, Colorado in 1905, and that was really his first contact both with wilderness and with Native Americans. He seems to have um, connected very early on with the coyote as the most mysterious and interesting of the wild animals that were around. But in 1905, Colorado had grizzly bear, timber wolf, wolverine, lynx, as well as coyote and fox. Um, when when uh, Jaime uh, ended up married in Carmel in about 1914. He decided to try some ranching again and bought into a ranch way up on the high northeastern plateau of California, up around Alturas. This would be just west of the Warner Range and Pitt River Country. So again, he spent some time uh, ranching up there and Eventually, uh, on, at one of his visits in Big Sur, and it's probably about, ni- I mean, in Carmel, about 1915, uh, a friend of his who he'd met when he'd been studying uh, medicine at Harvard, this friend of his, an English professor named Sam Seward, came up to him and said, hey, man, you should see this country south of here, this Sur coastline. There's no roads through it. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's rugged. It's remote. Uh, it's spectacularly beautiful, and it's absolutely alone. And Sam Seward told him that he'd hike the whole coast, and you could go 30 miles without seeing a ranch. And Dangulo's first thought was, this guy is exaggerating. But his second thought was, i got to go down and check this out. And he eventually ran into a couple of vaqueros. Vaqueros, the old Spanish word that becomes American, buckaroo, they're cowboys. And these guys were ranching down at Big Sur. They came riding through Carmel, and Dangulo asked if they'd take him down there. And he rode on down and realized, that his friend wasn't exaggerating. The coast was as remote and beautiful as he'd heard. And uh, he decided to homestead this piece of property that is on what today is called Partington Ridge, which was where eventually many artists and bohemians set up, including Henry Miller and uh, uh, Jean Varga and various others who are sort of known from Big Sur lore. But Angulo... um, took on this piece of property and lived there off and on for the rest of his life, Uh, put in an old Spanish irrigation system. He had uh, uh, citrus trees, olive trees, um, herbs and vegetables he grew, and eventually, once the coast highway had been put down, was able to bring in cement and windows and wood-burning stoves and things, and build himself a proper house down there in 1933. 
You know, it, it's interesting how there's this thread of, uh, let's call it self-reliance, uh, to, to evoke an, an old American ideal and, and going back to Thoreau and, and, and carrying forward today in, in a lot of different ways, um, some more conservative, some more progressive, uh, but it's a central American ideal. And when I, when I read about uh, Jaime's, you know, property in Big Sur and then how much time he spent there and all the work he put into it and then also just sort of the way that eventually, you know, faded away. And he, it, it, it was clearly something he was doing not to build a, an empire, uh, but something he needed to do for himself. And I'm thinking of similar gestures and aspects of uh, in Robinson Jeffers, for example, in a very different way, but still building his own uh, amazing, strange stone tower and in Carmel, or, or later with uh, with Gary Snyder, in the sense you get of reading his poetry, which very much comes out of this current of a sort of um, pride and satisfaction in material life and skill and being able to do things and being able to grow your food, to build your huts, you know, to do to uh, to not rely on industrial civilization to do that. And I, I get this very strongly with him. And, and I'd like to hear you talk a little bit. I know you're also, you know. A, a thorough influence character, just a little bit about that 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 quality of self reliance and and uh, the different facets it has. It's not just independence. It's not just know how. There, there's something deeper that's going on in this thread of uh, of uh, of being able to subsist on one's own efforts to to a large degree in some of these rough and wild places. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right there. I think. You know, rather than there being a single answer, I think there's like a mosaic of influences. One, of course, being that uh, terrific ex experiment of Thoreau, where he simply said, I went to the woods to live so that when it came time to die, I wouldn't discover I hadn't figured out how to live. And part of that, how to live is, can you do it self-reliant on your own with minimal store-bought goods? And that's definitely what Dangulo went down Big Sur for. Uh, he also claims that when he first saw that coastline, he said, this is the perfect place for a freedom-loving anarchist like me. And he wasn't just using the word anarchist in a sort of loose street sense. He had been part of anarchist circles when he was in medical school in Baltimore, and his first uh, studies and publications were serious accounts of anarchism. I think he felt... Um, you know, that part of this was like the uh, old Taoist sense, avoid the authorities, you know, stay away from the police state and figure out how to live without reliance on that complicated mix of civilization, surveillance, police state, rules and regulations. So what better to do it than if you can find a place remote where you can homestead, that kind of space isn't really open to us much anymore, but um, people get it from simply going into the wilderness, and I think Dangulo is a good model of that. You pointed to Gary Snyder, I think also other poets of that generation, Lou Welch very much one, who continuously looked for a remote area where he could write, or um, Kenneth Rexroth, all those years living in San Francisco, but most of his writing done uh, camping in the Sierra Nevadas or staying at a little cabin that he had found somewhere on the flanks of Mount Tamalpais. So, you know, I would say um, the mix of self-reliance, 
uh, an anarchist tendency to stay away from the authorities who are going to impose socially determined rules and regulations on you. And then Dangula brings a different thing in the mix, too, which is that the old spirit powers tend to shy away from too much human activity, and that if you want that kind of relationship, that kind of uh, feel for the deep presences in the natural world, you need to go somewhere relatively remote to do that and spend a lot of time listening and cultivating the powers there. Well, this, of course, brings brings up uh, 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 Dangolo's whole relationship with Native Americans, and particularly Native Americans in California, and even particularly within that, his fascination with some uh, tribal groups that from an sort of from an outside uh, perspective based on technology, social development, existence of musical instruments, of social hierarchy, of priestcraft, on all those sort of measures of what we might call civilization, that some of the groups that he spent time with and the individuals he got to know were part of tribes that, in a term that you willingly use that I would like to ask you about, are more primitive. Um, that's, of course, you know, because that's a, that term has a pejorative sense. Um, people try to dance around it, but it's also an important one to signify the lack of those, of many of those external markers of civilization, but the corresponding, in, at least in, in Dangelo's experience, wealth of linguistic and, and um, poetic uh, richness. And so it, it's inevitable that someone who's interested in these kinds of being in the wilderness is going to re resonate and connect um, with Native Americans, most people end up doing it in a fairly superficial way. They read some books, you know, maybe they uh, go visit some areas. But of course, uh, Dangelo dove as deep as you can, learning extraordinary number of languages, spending lots and lots of time with Native Americans, catch, getting their stories, getting uh, befriending them, hanging out with them, partying with them, drinking with them, you know. The guy really did it up, and he did it in an amazing way, and that's part of what's so inspiring about uh, his story. So again, just to, to ask you how to uh, how did he start to connect with these people, and how did how did he sort of find himself through them in a way like he he it's, he wasn't an alien there, and after a after a certain point, I mean, it's a very interesting model of of cultural encounter that that his life um, presents. Sure, I think I think you know one of the things that you. That, that tends to get glossed over in, you know, accounts of anthropology. <laughs> Most people who went into anthropology loved the people they worked with. You know, they made friendships. It wasn't like going out and, you know, working with something as abstract as a tribe or, a, you know, a culture. What they did is they went and they met people, and Dangulo had, uh, you know, the sort of love for hanging out with people, and he... Um, made a connection with a great many of the Pitt Rivers and Pomo people because uh, in those days there was an enormous amount of prejudice, as there still is. Um, but uh, he impressed people because he was willing to sit down and eat food with them, share a blanket with them to stay warm, drink a bottle of whiskey together. But I think the really crucial thing you're pointing to was his linguistics work and his recognition that people who have 
say, uh, never come up with the concept of the wheel or the internal combustion engine or, you know, a stratified government or banking system, you know, people have done just fine with language and with stories and with poems and songs. And Dangulo found that there was uh, the, the people with... Um, really small amounts of what you'd think of as material culture had this extraordinary wealth of linguistic capability. And at one point it goes into this funny little rant where he says, uh, injunctive, subjunctive, past, present, future, uh, oh, the languages of these so-called primitive people. And you can see right in front of you there that people who had um, very minimal culture because they didn't really, really need it, um, had plenty of language skills. And what really caught Dengulo was the power of the language that he got when he went out and spent time in storytelling societies and singing societies. So, you know, that really became his life's work. And then he, um, differed from a lot of his sponsors and the other linguists. Many of the linguists thought that what you should do is gather a whole lot of material, whereas Dangulo felt that if you could really understand the language down to one sentence, if you could actually speak and understand a single sentence, you had a deeper view into people than if you gathered shovelfuls of material that you didn't really understand very well. Well, and another uh, important dimension of that is just, you know, there's been such a uh, a wealth of interest in indigenous mythology and cosmology and religion in the 20th century. I mean, it's really the way that, that many 20th century people try to deal with their own sense of spiritual vacuity. And of course, it mm. raises all sorts of problems. Uh, you know, we and we get a, por a portrait of some of these more superficial seekers uh, when when uh, uh, Dangolo goes goes out to New Mexico and is hanging around Mabel Dodge and she's got these friends and he's kind of irritated by them but they're really interested in Indians and da 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 and you get the sense of of uh, you know it's there's there's such an enormous um, well there's a lot of reasons to be drawn to uh, these other stories these other ways of being in the land but but he was very insistent that if you that you can't you can't get to the mythology and the cosmology, the sort of, uh, you know, the religious juice without understanding not only something about the language, but also very much how people actually lived, how they lived in their material lives, how they lived exactly. the in, material, in, yeah. in place. Yeah, um, their tools, their food, you know, the weather patterns, the land itself, you know, climate, um, uh you know, I think one of the things that he found so richly about the Native American lore is that these things came out of centuries, millennia probably, of close, intimate contact with animals, plants, and landforms, and weather. So the uh, sort of figures that show up in Native California stories, coyote or blue jay or prairie dog or meadowlark, these figures are, you know, they're not just sort of Hollywood cartoon characters. They're not archetypes. These are characters that come out of an intimacy that goes back thousands and thousands of years. And it's also available to us in ourselves, but really as a kind of raw human being. And that was probably why 
Dan Gulo spent so much time at Big Sur was to really learn, you know, the specifics of the sequoia, the redwood trees, the poison oak, the um, blue jays who would cry to him as they flitted through the brush there. In fact, I was just down uh, in Carmel and Big Sur, and a couple people told me of uh, Dangulo riding his horse around down there, chewing on sprigs of poison oak, and I thought, that's how you really get to know your plant life. You chew on the plant that nobody else dares touch. Uh, that's interesting. Hey, is there, is there any uh, suggestion that he, that he tried Datura at any point? You know, he was so interested in the origins of religion and mythology, and I, you know, in a way, you could say that his deep personal quest was what is like the most irreducible religion? What is it, or spiritual life? What is it when you stand out there as a naked human being in a landscape with the powers breathing about you um, without any priesthood, any preconception? And he was constantly interrogating this. And as far as I've been able to find, he never writes about Datura, nor does he write about peyote um, or any of the other entheogens or hallucinogens that you'd expect. He has a couple poems to marijuana, which are vision poems, so clearly he smoked some marijuana. But I think he found among the tribes that he went among that there were other techniques of ecstasy, and those were other old traditional ones like fasting, singing, um, removing yourself from the little village or the campfire circle, putting yourself through some hardships, um, you know, largely climbing mountains, um, not eating, staying awake, and singing. And I think he did this kind of thing quite a bit. Well, that's one of the, the wonderful threads you, of your story is you, you get the sense that's both very powerful, but also enigmatic and and elusive of his own his own spiritual encounter with these forces. You know, the the point at which it's no longer about just the stories that he's hearing or the friendships he's making uh, with Native Americans and and his ability to kind of play in that world uh, through his mind through through language, but that in his own uh, you know voyages, his own living out in, in, in Big Sur and in other places, that he was also kind of commuting in a way. And you can, you pick it up in the stories, it's in the poems, but it's, but it's kind of elusive too. There's, there's a way in which he doesn't, he's not explicit uh, in a way that almost seems like even a deeper expression of something like, like a kind of coyote um, attitude. And, uh, and I guess that the, mo- the most, the, the place you see that the most is in his discussion of coyote, his, his, uh, the way in which Coyote figures in his writings, um, of this playfulness that's also uh, chaotic, that's also a, a world maker, a doctor, a, a kind of shaman. Um, so I'd love to hear a little more of like how you, I don't know, how you feel that, that he was, what, like how far he got to living in, a, in an animist world, a world where these, these, these beings were reignited. Uh, that they were no longer didn't no longer required the mediation of an anthropological text or a set of ethnographic techniques in order to be able to encounter. Well, I think you're you know right about his elusiveness. I think the um, best clues to his own search would be his writings, of course. But um, it's 
clear that he also went through a painful and powerful medicine study. In 1933, shortly after he'd built a house for himself down at Big Sur, he was down there with his wife, his son, and his daughter, and he adored his little boy. And there was a terrible car accident in which a car that he and his son were riding in went over the rim of, the, of Torrey Canyon and fell 160 feet down into the creek bed. Uh, the boy, Jaime's son, Alvaro, uh, Alvaro was killed, and Jaime was pinned for about 12 hours in the car. When he was um, finally pulled out, he had a broken shoulder, a broken pelvis, broken ribs, and he spent time in uh, a hospital and then eventually went back down to Big Sur from Monterey and spent about the next decade living largely by himself or with some ranch hands down at Big Sur. And this is a very dark time for him. He stopped doing any kind of professional work. He was devastated by the death of his son. He became addicted to painkillers and to alcohol, uh, recovering from the physical pain and the emotional pain. And this is the time where the stories about him begin to get very wild and really present, uh, you know, the most enigmatic character and a kind of, um, you know, cycle of tales that uh, in some ways resemble coyote, but it's a dark coyote. And many of the tales are very dark, and many of the tales are, you know, meant to be humorous in a way, but they show deep, deep struggle going on there. And I would like to keep my hands off of that, in a sense. I mean, there are people who have published tales. There are terrific tales that circulate um, orally up and down the coast. But I think without being judgmental, I think listening to them, sitting around a campfire, brooding over them, not asking if they're true or false, not asking if his behavior is right or wrong, but recognizing that he went into something very deep. And I think the um, the uh, sort of elusive evidence is after this period of 10, maybe even almost 15 years at Big Sur, he reappears in the Bay Area sick and dying of cancer, but does his greatest work. He does a series of broadcasts for Pacifica Radio, for KPFA in Berkeley, which has just opened, uh, and does about 100 broadcasts of a series that they called Old Time Stories. This was eventually brought down, condensed into the book that came out under the title Indian Tales. But along with that, he also wrote his greatest short book, Indians and Overalls, and a large book on language. And where that material comes from, you can track it in his life, but you can only track the external material, the internal work that he did, and what makes his storytelling and his comprehension of song and linguistics so deep, and his, you know, profoundly rich and intimate sense with the land and the powers resident in the land can only come out of that period at Big Sur. And I think um, it's best to not try to step too close there. Big Sur is a, you know, 
wild and still kind of terrifying landscape and I have enormous respect for the people who live down there. And most of them don't want you wandering around in their property looking for Jaime's medicine powers. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And it still comes through. And, and in a way, I, you know, I, I think it, it's, it's sort of like what we learn from poetry is that is that uh, oftentimes the best way to invoke or encounter the forces uh, uh, is to create the field, but don't, uh, don't look too hard or don't make too many demands. Uh, let things show up. As, exactly. As and Jaime says that of the medicine powers. He says they're wild and they're shy. You know, if you want to cultivate them, you need to recognize they're shy. And that means, you know, not hang out where a lot of people are making a lot of noise and being a little bit wild yourself attracts them because they don't like people who are too overly civilized. So, you know, that, you know, but he's, I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, he would not be, um, you know, a workshop teacher at a place like Esalen. He had his own dark broodings and much of them were, you know, involved with his linguistic studies and his friendships. And he was very careful about his friendships, and I think worked very hard not to expose material that was considered, um, uh, you know, not for everybody's eyes. Um, when he did his work at Taos Pueblo, uh, he promised his friends there, particularly Tony Lujan, he would never publish anything. He would never speak to people about it. Um, it was just purely his own interest, and unless he was given permission or authorization by the old men of Taos, he would not um, broadcast anything. So, as you point out, in that way, he's very, very different from the uh, sort of uh, throng of anthropologists and literati and celebrities drifting in and out of Mabel Dodge Luhan's house. Um, I, it's, it's important to mention that that the uh, that Jaime's recordings for for KPFA are are available online. You can get them at the uh, the Internet Archive, and uh, you know I've li- I listened to a few of them. They're they're really wonderful. They are strange. They're it's a little bit like what am I listening to? I, I don't really know. So I um, almost in, in in a spirit of of, uh, of 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 kind of helping the, to communicate what he was up to. Um, give us a little sense, like if we turn it, if we tune into one of those stories, what what are we listening to? Is this are these stories he's heard? Is it something that he's kind of inventing? He's weaving in practical lore and mythology and his own clearly very uh, specific, you know, idiosyncratic way. So maybe help us uh, understand a little bit about what, he, what what's going on in those in those wonderful recordings. Sure. Let me describe it just a little bit first. You know, um, it's now available online. You can also get it uh, ordered as CDs, and it's 22 CDs of about an hour each. Um, uh, so you're talking about a 22-hour oral performance piece done um, in front of a microphone to an audience in Berkeley. Uh, these were mostly episodes that ranged from about... 10 to 12 or 13 minutes, maybe 14 minutes would be the longest one. And you can hear the, uh, you know, the little junctures between each of these broadcastings. Um, it's worth listening from front to back or beginning to end because 
Uh, D'Angulo made a kind of encompassing tale. It's a little bit like uh, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. It's really the story of a journey with a family uh, of animal people that wander around Northern California. Uh, their wanderings are a kind of envelope tale to allow a lot of storytelling to take place and for a lot of people to be met so you can hear different languages, you can hear different song traditions, um, travelers and residents can meet each other and swap tales about medicine powers, about how you hunt, how you cure animals, what kind of songs you use for gambling. Um, so there's an enormous amount of lore embedded in it. And Dangulo um, made himself into a consummate storyteller. And, you know, the question of how much of this is accurate and authentic, he was an anthropologist. He was um, working very specifically with detailed notes that he had taken, field notes of languages and stories, and he had his own methodology for transcribing songs, and he sings about 100 songs on these tapes. Um, at the same time, he's making it up um, in the sense that Poets and authors have always made things up, and I see this as a um, as a artwork that's sort of on the scale of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass or Ezra Pound's Cantos or Gary Snyder's Mountains and Rivers Without End, with the major difference being that this is an oral performance and not a written book. And I think you really need to listen to it orally and maybe listen to it many times to begin to get a feel for how the whole thing is woven together. Um, there's a great many languages spoken that no longer have speakers. For instance, the whisper language of Shasta and a great many songs that Dangulo sings that he collected in the 1920s that Probably you'll never get a chance to hear anywhere else. Pomo songs and Karok songs and Yurok songs and Paiute songs and Modoc songs, Pomo songs. Um, and, you know, sort of a terrific gathering of material, but very much put into a fictional structure that Dangulo is devising. And his characters tend to be based on people close to home, um, his wife, his dead son, his daughter, um, close friends like William Roganall Benson, uh, a Pitt River Indian he knew named Timu, a uh, eastern Miwok he knew named Killelli or Killelli Joe. And it's an opportunity for Dangulo to really pull all this material together and to hear these voices speaking and give life to the voices. You know, I'm curious. You, you've you've taken the, the the time and trouble to uh, to learn Sanskrit and to and to learn so, uh, something of of Arapaho. I'd like to hear just from your own experience uh, of of the ways in which the hard work of learning a language opens up possibilities, not just in terms of translation of, of bringing some meaning from that's embedded in another language into English. But also just as a as a way to encounter or, or become even part of the tradition that you're also translating, and which just seems to be part of what he was able to do with this with this great work was to not just report or capture, uh, but to some extent continue 
through his own, you know, even though he wasn't indigenous and, you know, came from a wealthy family and whatever. I mean, all these different things, but there, there, you know, you don't want to get into too much about authentic, what's inauthentic. It's, it's complicated, but there was some way in which he was able to carry forward something. And I, and I'm curious whether you've wrestled or, or, or experienced some of this, um, in your own work with, with translation. Sure. Um, there's a phrase that I use in my book a couple of times because it strikes me more and more as how uh, helpful it is as a metaphor, but that a language is really a user's guide to a specific bioregion. That embedded in the language is not only vocabulary that's been refined over a long period of time. You know, the vocabulary is very clear and the sort of mythic one that gets passed around is um, Eskimo words for snow, but you could say the same of Spanish words for uh, horseback gear, or you could say the same thing about, um, you know, any peoples that lives along coastline for understanding weather patterns and, you know, what happens with tides. So, you know, any particular language really develops in a specific bioregion and becomes you know, that phrase, a user's guide, in a sense. This was why I began to study the Arapaho language. It's the, uh, um, sort of was the most prevalent pre-contact indigenous language to the um, foothills, Great Plains interface where I live now. Um, and I went into it to think, you know, thinking that I'd like to get a deeper sense of the bioregion uh, through a language that had spent a great deal more time. I mean, you know, one of the amusing things is to see what happens when a contact language comes into new territory. So the West is full of all sorts of, you know, inaccurate amusing, almost mythic namings. You know, we have in Colorado an antelope that's not really an antelope. It's closer to a goat. Uh, the horned toad is not a toad at all. The prairie dog is not a dog. Um, the original, some of the original names for coyote was prairie wolf, and it's not a wolf. Um, meadow dog, and it's not exactly meadow or dog. So, you know, to see what you can of a bioregion through the language that's there, and then deeper than that, I think you start to get into the real mysteries of syntax and grammar and um, modes of expression. And these are specialized interests, but I completely understand why Dangulo devoted his life to linguistics, because learning a language becomes, in a funny way, like um, taking off your own human mask and putting on some other kind of mask, you know, a mask that uh, represents a figure that evolved in a different landscape with a different understanding of the natural world, a different understanding of the economics, the social relations, the tools that you need. So, you know, I've spent 30 or 40 years working with Sanskrit, and uh, that has given me um, enormously valuable insights, not just into Sanskrit poetry, but the ability to move between languages. I thought with my background in Sanskrit, some of these other languages would be relatively easy, but many Native American languages are much tougher because 
the grammar and syntax are very different, and the sound system are different. Um, Dangulo loved the fact that Achamawi or Pitt River was a tonal language, and he makes a few little suggestions in some of his letters and some of his writings that because of the tonality in the language, Pitt River is actually singing and not speaking. That fascinates me. This is a little place I can get into by studying raga singing and traditional Sanskrit chants or when we begin to move back through English into the realm of nursery rhymes and some of those deeply embedded, um, you know, sort of playful um, song styles and rhyme forms which uh, other great writers have picked up. I've just been reading King Lear, and King Lear is full of, you know, round dances and curses and nursery tales that I think, um, you know, have embedded in them a kind of originary grammar for what we call English or even American English now. Yeah, and as, as far as I understand it, there are, I think, on a number of sort of... Uh you know, what you call them, evolutionary anthropologists, people who are looking at what what happened over time, who think that a language uh, begins with singing, that it that it's uh, mm-hmm. that, that you know prose style speaking uh, is is uh, something that emerges from a more originary uh, singing language, which is a certain certainly if, if you know evidence is great, but it's also just a a wonderfully. A poetic notion because it tells us something about poetry that even if we don't explicitly read poetry as sing as song and that there's a difference between song and poetry clearly that that difference that poetry has from prose involves uh, elements of this this song world that that, um, that almost inevitably has a, a kind of longer or almost more archaic uh, resonance to it, even if it's deployed in a very, very sophisticated way. You're absolutely right. In fact, I would suggest to everybody, um, pull out a recording device and tell a story. doesn't matter what kind of story. Tell an old family story. Tell a joke. Um, tell, you know, an account of something interesting that happened to you. Then play it back and just listen to it and think if you were going to transcribe it, you'll start to notice the places that you pause, the places that you hesitate, where your voice drops low, where you maybe get excited and speak faster and your voice rises up. And if you were to start to transcribe that, you'd find that to accurately notate how your voice works, you're putting it on paper much more like poetry than what we think of as prose. Prose, I think, is really you know, an invention that was developed because... Uh, writing surfaces were very valuable. You know, in Europe, you used sheepskin. It took 300 sheep to print a Bible. Um, you know, you didn't just waste that material. And, you know, even in China, where paper originated, paper was uh, a crucial resource. It wasn't just something that you could, you know, rumple up and use to start a fire in your fireplace or haul carloads down to your recycling center. I think prose really came out of an economic exigency and that really our speech and our originary way of working with language is far closer to poetry and uses tones of voice and rhythmic patterns and 
pauses and hesitations and tonalities throughout. So we are still speaking much closer to poetry and even to song, but we don't record that in our writing anymore. Oh, that's a, that's a really fascinating thing. I will definitely uh, be, be thinking about it. as someone who, who gives a lot of talks as well as um, writing. Uh, I'm aware of, of the ways in which there's, there's a kind of secret sharing in some ways between forms of performance that have more emphasis on cadence and, and, and the sort of sonic performance and how they kind of bleed in and out of, of, of writing and how like that poetry secretly enlivens prose and your prose is very much like that. It, it does not read as if you are trying to sound poetic and beautiful and filigreed, but it's actually animated very deeply by a poetic sensibility. And so you get this marvelous crossbreed. I, again, to talk about Snyder, I think his, his essays also have this. They're, they're full of very powerful concepts and great arguments based in a lot of knowledge. But the actual language is enlivened in a, in a subtle but, but very noticeable way with, uh, with, a, with a kind of poetics. Um, we have just a few, speaking of this, actually, we just have a few minutes left, and I did want to ask you one thing. One of the reasons that um, uh, Dangelo's is an important story is not just for this, his own fascinating tale, but again, the way in which he influenced um, people who came after a word, and we've already talked about Snyder, we've talked about Lou Welch, you could talk about Philip Whalen, we could talk about a whole, but Dale Pendle, who we've had on the show, and I, I know it's a friend of yours as well. Um, you know, people who are, are, are who have a relationship with wilderness, with Native American lore, with the West Coast, with uh, Taoism and Zen, and we haven't really talked too much about that. But what I, I'm curious for you, you know, you're you're, you're teaching at Naropa, you're, you're you're you've been embedded in in poetry since at least the 70s. What's happening with that current? Is it is there a, a young a young fresh uh, turn? Is it something that is trying to fight off the monster of, of uh, hyper-technology like everything else. Where do you see that particular current, that West Coast poetics, with its relationship to wilderness and the primitive and altered states and Zen and Native Americans? Wh wh where, where do you see that uh, going now? Well, it's not going to go away. I mean, you're right. Everything's fighting off the, um, you know, the surge of fascination with these new technologies, but for some reason in Naropa, um, at the Jack Kerouac School, uh, you know, fantastic writers just keep showing up and doing really terrific work. I also um, am quite close to a lot of the writers in the Bay Area and, you know, other stretches of California, and, you know, there's always... You know, this is a human possibility, the writing, the singing, the poetry, and I think there are always going to be people who resonate deeply with that. And, um, you know, I think the uh, big shifts in technology, the big shifts in economics, there's always going to be a couple of people who step to the side and watch it all go by, just as Jaime Dangulo did. He could have stayed in Paris as a young man. He could have... Um, lived uh, a very urbane life. He could have become even a writer if he'd wanted to, or a dancer, or something in the streets of Paris, and enjoyed the wealth of his family before his eccentric father squandered it. But something drove him somewhere else, and I think that's a deep human impulse. It's not there for everybody. You know, he has one letter in which he writes to his sister about homesteading at Big Sur, and none of his friends can understand this need he has to 
touch down to you know the most raw reality to actually get his hands into the dirt and to build campfires and to live without store-bought goods but that's an impulse that's always going to be there and we have you know sort of a great lineage of teachers as you mentioned Thoreau we've got Jaime Dangulo we've got Robinson Jeffers we've got Gary Snyder and Lou Welch um, and we've got Younger people, Dale Pendell, you mentioned. So, you know, I think this, this continues. And some of this becomes when, um, you know, the, the, the non-digitized world becomes overwhelming. I've been in touch with Dale Pendell a lot, and he has uh, – this is public knowledge, so I don't think I'm um, – uh, compromising him in any ways, but he had a liver transplant several years ago, and cancer has returned now in his spine, and he's really meditating on what it means to have bones or not to have bones or to have compromised bones, and he's been pulling a lot of um, old Shasta and Paiute and Kerouac stories out of Jaime Dangulo um, that have to do with living people have bones, but the dead don't have bones, and the people in the land of the dead um, do not like to be around people who have bones. So Dale is working very intensely in his own personal quest as he deals with uh, radiation therapy and various things to overcome this bone cancer. What's the old um, wisdom about, you know, the skeletal system? And so he's right there on the edge of what I assume is modern-day technology, you know, radiation therapy, uh, and the old lore that helps keep him uh, stable and sane and give him a context in which to work with his own skeleton. Well, Andrew, that's a beautiful way to finish the story. As as a friend of Dale's, and and as many listeners know know his work, and, and you know, of course, it's a it's a heavy thing, but it's also a beautiful thing to hear uh, the ways in which he's drawing from this lore, even in this uh, situation. Uh, so, uh, just to thank you for that, and to thank you again for coming on to Expanding Mind and talking about uh, your book. Thank you, Eric. It's been a real pleasure. Great. That was uh, Andrew Schelling, uh, Tracks Along the Left Coast, Jaime D uh, Dangelo and Pacific Coast Culture. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. And remember, you can check out uh, KPFA's recordings on Internet Archive, and uh, they're very much worth listening to. You won't hear anything else like them anywhere else on the vast Internet. So until next week, keep your minds open. Mm -hmm. 